Hello and welcome to Russians with Attitudes. We are sitting in a bar in southern Sydney with Doros, an artist formerly known as Feshi Zizek. Hi, Feshi, if that's your real name. <laughs> uh, hi, gents. How's it going? Why did you change your internet nickname recently? Well, I, I opened my own website and I'm my own youtube channel finally and i'm kind of gonna start to populate it with content soon up to now fashi zizek was just like a a a shit posting twitter handle which apparently caught on but i think i think the twitter golden age is long since done i think i probably actually missed it it like ended in 2000 16 or something like that yeah and sure i'm so incredibly sh just shadow banned now that i don't get in any engagement so i'm just gonna move to like weibo and uh contact i'm just gonna leave <laughs> behind twitter for good yeah this is actually a huge problem i think for many content creators because mm -hmm. um, on one hand the centralization of the internet like in the last 10 years or so it it sucks because everyone is just on the same two or three websites, like YouTube and um, Twitter and I don't know, Reddit, I guess, for normies. And like back then you had like, every person had their own personal website and you had like hundreds of interesting blogs you could sift through and so on. But nowadays it's very centralized. So if you get banned or shadow banned from one of these big websites and can't use them anymore, you're like fucked because it's impossible to uh, create an audience this way. So people just go to Gap and so on, but uh, Gap, for example, really sucks. It's like the laggiest and buggiest piece of shit I have ever seen. Um, uh, Substack is, I don't know, it's more a thing for mainstream journals, I guess. And um, it's uh, people have nowhere to go, so um, they will just gravitate to like different centers, as you said, like Russian websites, yeah. Chinese yeah. websites, maybe. I find this fascinating. I basically think that what is going to happen in the next, say, four years, one of the things that's going to happen is they're already discussing it in Europe. They're discussing some very bureaucratic, top-down, official European Union version of Twitter that is under is based in the EU and under the control of the EU. Now, like anyone who knows european union bureaucracy can see that it's going to be a, a fucking nightmare the only people who are going to be on there is you know officials and 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 bureaucrats and intellectuals it's not a place you'll be able to shit post probably but i think basically you're, you're going to see the response that pretty sensible response that the chinese adopted kind of right out of the gate it's much more sensible to have your own version of all this kind of internet infrastructure that I don't know if it really reflects the unique way of life of like Chinese and Russians and so on. It's probably in a way not that much different, but it allows the party and the regime to filter what is seen and, you know, put a spin on things in its own way and basically to control it. I mean, European Union officials at this point kind of said in response to Trump getting banned, even though they obviously don't admire him, uh, they were like, no, this is this is not okay. Because whatever else is the case about Europe, these snobs, and I, I, I agree with them in this, these snobs like don't want American capitalists to have control over their Twitter accounts as well. So 
Yeah, this is um, this is really a huge thing that happened, and um, I agree that uh, the Trump ban on Twitter is like the last straw. And people were mostly okay with the Americans controlling the global internet uh, because it was convenient, you know. Mm. But um, there is a point at which it, uh, like, you have diminishing returns, and uh, it sucks to have Americans control the internet. And so I agree that basically every serious country will have their own internet in the long run, and uh, everyone will have uh, a great firewall, like Chinese style. Mm -hmm. And there will be some sort of national segregation um, on the internet, which might be a good thing. Um, kind of bad for, I don't know, international shitposting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But it might be um, actually better for the national discourse and so on. And I think the Americans are going to really, really regret what they did. Um, this, this is going to go down in history as a huge blunder because... They were like, for three decades, they were the guys who gave us their internet. Like, wow, cool, that's a nice thing to do. But mm -hmm. in 10 years, it'll be, nobody will remember that the Americans created the internet. Oh, I don't think so. Aren't you exaggerating? Because what was any European platform other than Krauchan? I don't remember any. Do you really believe that uh, European Union will create some gap or a parlor type arrangement and uh, it will get successful? Why? Yeah, yes, I think so. I think it's inevitable because, um, mm. as I said, the Trump end was uh, the last straw and uh, people now... I see your argument here. Yeah, I see your reasoning, by, uh, but I don't see the precedent for... A creation of some alternative that is actually successful without a Chinese-style restrictions on foreign media. There will be If... That's next. That's what's oh. coming. But on what platform will European Union ban Twitter or restrict uh, Twitter? Here, I don't see it. Here's what I kind of basically see happening. I mean, look, look at what's happened with... Um, what's its name? It's not Gab. It's, it's Palo. So... Paulo basically kicked off every, you know, store, like it was kicked off its domain. Um, you couldn't access it for a while. And the reach around they found was basically to, to set up somewhere in Russia, right? What is the United States response to this going to be? I mean, they have rammed this, this Russiagate narrative, you know, down the throats of Americans for so long that the media themselves are convinced of it now. You know, what started as clearly like a, a gay op. How are they going to respond to this other than to say eventually, you know, they'll find a pretext to say this is Russian interference in the American democracy. We need, they're not going to say firewall. They're going to say, no, of course, our system is going to be very different from the Chinese. But um, these sites that are based in Russia, you know, they're a danger to the body politic, we have to, we have to shut this down. And as soon as they do that, maybe even before the, the Europeans are basically going to respond the same way. The, in one sense, I think half of Europe, the liberal shit lib kind of part of Europe will be like, well, if the Americans are not going to carry forward the torch of, of, of freedom and, and free speech, then we have to do it. And so, you know, we should, We need an alternative that will allow free speech. And then in a way that the equally snobby center-right in Europe will just be like, 
we we can't allow the Americans to humiliate us like this. They cannot have the the precedent and the control and the decision. They the, you know they cannot monopolize this decision whether or not we should have access to Twitter or YouTube or whatever it is. And so I think I think all of these alternatives are going to start popping up. Some of them probably private. Um, some of them some kind of like public-private partnership. If I can believe it of any place, I can believe it of the EU. They're going to have like an official EU version. I, I don't know who's going to develop it. Or... It's going to suck though, probably. Oh, it's it's going to suck. suck. Yeah, yeah. But Twitter sucks now. Everything sucks. And so, <laughs> so this is really just part of like my conviction about technology. You know, like technology like a technique of some kind has a golden age like think of the printing press originally in a, in a way like it was the original shit posting and there was that like golden period where like if you had some dangerous political or religious idea basically in that age you could put it out there and like give it to your friends and pass around these leaflets and books and oh isn't this such a great revolutionary technology yeah that's what it starts off as and then Eventually, the state gets control of it. There, there's so much of it, and there's so much content that no one can actually sift through it all. It becomes this, it's not an echo chamber, but it just becomes this like field where some things are censored, most things are allowed, but because so many things are banal and boring, people are just bored by it. And then eventually it becomes like a full-on technique of governance and it basically allows the central powers to centralize even further. And people thought the internet would be different. Well, it's exactly the same, isn't it? I mean, it had like 10, 20, 25 years maybe of like a golden age in a way. And this is this is it. It's reached that point, like like the printing press, where every like every power of central power is gonna seize on it and um create its own version and put up its own firewall. To be fair, though, the printing press lasted much longer than 25 years, their golden age. And uh, even when governments started to censor some books, it wasn't all bad. Uh, there was a huge gray area between the golden age and the total uh, you know, totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. So don't you believe there will be some quite extensive gray area that starts about now when there's no real alternative but uh, people are gonna uh, they're stuck in twitter they're addicted to it you know there is no <laughs> it's like a methadone we need a methadone clinic for twitter addicts there's no uh, sane solution because people are basically junkies now yeah i i i, I like the way you put that but then on the other hand like a lot of the people I follow and some of my most interesting mutuals are leaving already or like they're toning down their use. They've, they've said it's all changed. People who have been on Twitter for a lot longer than I have, I've been on for like two and a half years maybe. So yeah, I really feel like I missed the golden age. We live in the Kali Yuga, right? So whatever passes for like a mini golden age internal to the age of decay, doesn't it just grow shorter and shorter and shorter? Like you're right about the printing press, like the golden age of the printing press was long and it was considered this dangerous, revolutionary, seditious and like heretical device for a pretty long time. The Internet 
the revolutionary potential of all these technologies just grows smaller and smaller and smaller. But uh, let's jump to geopolitical situation. So basically, you believe in some great bifurcation between uh, European Union and United States, that they are going to divide their spheres of power. There is a struggle that is starting right now between them. Uh, how do you see it? What uh, country will lead the European Union against the United States? There was like this whole subgenre of British journalistic like literature um, before they left the EU. I mean, it basically lasted decades of like Euroscepticism, right? Like Euroskeptic journalism. What these British journalists like developed as another name, not a euphemism. They cast a curse upon the EU by calling it like the Fourth Reich, Fiatusreich. But you know, who's gonna lead the EU? Is there a real conflict there? I I don't know. There's the beginnings of a conflict. In the beginnings of this conflict, the EU is at a serious disadvantage. It has no army. It's surrounded basically on almost all sides by very enthusiastic American vassal states. The Germans were, in my mind, I think, like if you look at geostrategy, they were incredibly stupid to permit and even encourage the the disintegration of Yugoslavia and then afterward um, the bombing and disintegration of the rump state, the independence of Kosovo, and then an enormous military base there because the the Americans already had a base a naval base uh, on the coast of Norway. I mean, so they control the Atlantic, they control the North Sea, uh, they have a place in the Balkans from which it will be very, very difficult to dislodge them. I mean, who's going to go to war directly with the United States? And now they're basically kind of slowly drifting away. They're abandoning what used to be called old Europe in order to basically like prop up all the the ex-Soviet regimes in, in yeah. yes yes the near abroad um the near abroad you know so i don't know what moves are really open to the eu i don't think it really has much of a chance because i mean they I mean, already lost yeah. culturally and militarily also but uh, their economy is quite strong. The strongest uh, aspects of the European Union, I think, is they're somewhat more sane than America, for sure. There are no <laughs> such uh, idiotic and insane things happening every single day in the European Union. Uh, maybe I don't as actively involved in uh, the European life, maybe so, but I believe there is uh, some kind of uninterrupted historic process in Europe that lasted for thousands of years that is lacking in America, more grounded in history. Even like, say, a lot of memes about Sweden, you know, and how <laughs> yeah, yeah, progressive yeah. and insane they are. But actually, they're not. Popular Swedes are much more based, forgive my language, than any American. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I think this is a, an observation that a lot of Europeans made in different forms when the United States was still consolidating and rising, and some of them were very worried. This was before the US overtook Europe, but 
in kind of enumerating the different national features of, or like uh, the new American national character that was being born, they kind of said it's very it's very interesting how even at the beginning, you read back now and you see that even at the beginning, they had this weird, it's like where Europeans have a deep sense of their history in the sense of like, it's good and it's bad because it's a deep sense of self and it grounds you, but it's also heavy. It's a, it's a burden. It depresses you. It's like, it forces you in a way to be like very cynical. Optimism doesn't come easily to continental Europeans at least, but in the U S it's just like, history is not a shackle for them. History is not, history is not a chain. There is no chain because they believe there is no chain, you know, like they, they, think they achieved the perfect form of government and the perfect regime. And they think everyone's eyes are on them all the time because they have such a great system and they have such a great economy and they have such a great society and that like everyone's envious of them. I mean, it's just military force, isn't it? And in a way, I kind of almost want to take back what I said before about, you know, <laughs> British people calling the EU Fiatusreich because the, the Germans don't have a German constitution and they don't have German laws. They have an American constitution and American laws and their culture, Western Europe's culture is extremely Americanized. And so even though like they're, they're conscious of themselves as having a much deeper history that they just feel so defeated and so thoroughly colonized and humiliated. It's like, what comes next? For the Germans, for the French, Italians, Spanish, like these these larger nations, what comes next? Are they going to contest their near abroad? Are they going to contest the European continent militarily with America? I don't see that happening soon. So all that really is available to them is these kind of like, we're not going to create a real Großraum. Uh, we're we're going to create like a, a digital Großraum where... We don't let in Twitter or, you know, we privilege our own version of the internet, but... But will it be different? Uh, let's imagine this uh, new European internet or intranet, uh, whatever. Will it be actually different if uh, Germany and other European countries are governed by American-type laws uh, and even more harsher ones uh, with regards to free speech? Because... Uh, there is no much fixation on free speech to start with. So why wouldn't Donald J. Trump, would he be protected in this European imaginary internet? I don't think no, he will no, be. No, not. no, uh, I, I, yeah. I don't think anybody's saying that coming age of segregated uh, internet growth rounds is going to be based and kind of uh, cool to shitpost. And it's going to suck. It's going to suck because it's just going to be an extension of state power as a it has been for quite a while, but not overtly. So, um, like, people didn't realize it that much that everything that happens on the internet is some kind of CIA gay-op. And uh, now they kind of understand it better. And um, it's just going to become the new normal. So yeah, yeah, a very new but very shitty normal. I had a joke a few days ago. Like, I tweeted out, it would be perfect. It would be funny if... Trump like opened a contact account and he like became like the biggest <laughs> account on like the Russian version of Twitter and all his followers 
went there as well. But look, I mean, this, the same thing has maybe like effectively happened with with Parler. And I think the response to that is just going to be, I mean, the the deep state and the left, the liberals, the center, whatever, um, the rhinos in America, they already have a narrative at their disposal, which is this is just a continuation of Putin's control over Trump and how there was this big collusion uh, yeah. that, you know, there was this big conspiracy, basically, to control the, the, the US presidency. So yeah, I think it's, I think the golden age of the internet's done. It's all going to be shit from here on out. I, th I think what you're going to have is like a, a double internet, you'll have the large national ones with the great firewalls and so on, where they uh, try to segregate from the rest of the world mostly. And then you're going to have a s really small private internet using like uh, more progressive technology. Bit. Yes, like Orbit, for example. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, you're going to have a lot of these types. Um, and that's just going to be a few people, not that many. And you will be able to shitpost with your bros and so on, but you're not going to have the possibility to influence normies on the scale that was possible in like 2015 or 16 when they had um, yeah. when they had like congress hearings uh, where they had ricky vaughn tweets <laughs> on the whiteboard it's funny how <laughs> even i was kind of influencing the american discourse and i uh, didn't even uh, have any anything to back it up i barely spoke english but it was enough it was enough to influence the american reality just to shit post on the twitter it was really funny yeah um, and the essential problem with uh, all those uh, alternatives like Parler and Gap, is that there are political. Mm -hmm. There is nothing but politics on there because there is uh, all those uh, political dissidents who run away from Twitter, from persecution. It's a bit like uh, all those religious uh, fanatics uh, that went. Uh, from Europe to US to escape persecution. Uh, but it uh, has a mark on this society. Like, uh, if they're all political, they're quite insane and there's no funny content. There's no normie-friendly content to speak of. And I don't believe in any social media site that uh, doesn't appeal to some form of non-political funny content yeah, I mean, uh, for normies. I mean, you got to understand that Twitter is also political right from the start. It was literally created um, to organize the Arab Spring protests. It was created um, before that, well, though. For, uh, it was created in 2006. So I don't think it was the primary objective, actually. But it, was, uh, it uh, became a political and revolutionary tool, yeah. Twitter before 2010 was like nothing. Before the smartphone age, Twitter was nothing. Nobody was on Twitter. Growth of Twitter, where it became like the place where everyone hangs out, coincided with uh, like smartphones. It coincided with the CIA meddling in Arab countries and so on. So it's all, uh, it hangs together. And a few years back, I read an article about um, how there is some... Um, you know, uh, social media f in Cuba uh, that is not censored, that's kind of underground and so on, and people use it to criticize uh, the regime. And then it turned out that it was literally developed in a CIA lab. 
Um, so, and Twitter is the same. It kind of, and I guess, went out of control, uh, not in the sense that they were like fighting against it, becoming apolitical and the place to shitpost, but it was just coincidence, I think, that it caught on as much as it did. And it was always regarded as kind of a necessary evil that you have to um, have actual free speech and so on on Twitter when it's just like a tool for uh, protesters to um, hashtag where they're going next and what they're going to burn down. Let's change the topic uh, for a bit. Uh, Doros, are you there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you, why is your accent uh, so much different than Amy Therese? Is she from, Bel- uh, what it's called? Melbourne? I don't remember. Mm, I don't actually. know where she's from. This is not a Sydney accent. We yeah, but know. what is... No one knows. No yeah. one knows where this is from. Um, I was I was born and raised here. I mean, I've been back to Europe. I have maybe lived there for kind of six months. And I know Serbian as well. Um, but yeah, no, no one knows where this is from. I have people ask, I have had people ask me like, are you British? Are you American? Are you, are you a Kiwi? Are you Russian? One, one person <laughs> asked me if I was Indian. I was yeah. just like. It's just that Amy Therese's accent is uh, much more incomprehensible properly. than uh, yours for Incomprehensible. Me. Yeah, Amy's uh, accent is much more harsh on the. No, ear. you're not used. She doesn't have a harsh accent. You're just not used For to the me, Australian accent. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I, I have never been to Australia, sure. But uh, it's really weird to me. Me and Kirill were uh, trying to understand what she was saying, and uh, we couldn't make it. Yeah, so, and she, she, she has a pretty normal. Like, her accent is not For very you. deep. For or Australia, extreme. maybe. No, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I mean, for Australia, like, it's not a deep accent. Like, I have, I used to think I had no accent, but then when I was overseas, I, I did my exchange and I lived for a while in uh, Rotterdam, and I met m- many Australians there, as you do in Europe, and most of them were like, "Oh, you're an Aussie," so I was like, oh, "Okay." I guess <laughs> some of the accent bleeds through. There for is people some who are familiar. They listen closely. Yeah. Yeah. There is some melodic quality to Australian accent that yeah. is lacking in others. And Irish as well. Irish and uh, some Australian accents are very melodic uh, and pleasant for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, American became a default accent that is non-recognizable, basically. And they're very. I'm very sad every time I hear some... Uh, old-time program or old-time movie. There was uh, an American accent of transatlantic transatlantic, uh, accent that was much more pleasant than uh, current modern American English. I see why you say it was like, it was more pleasant, but remember, it was the original fake and gay accent. Like, literally, it was just birthed from the mind of one man who then got a conference of like linguists and journalists together and was like, this is how the upper class of like America should speak so that like it's more neutral and it's more posh yeah. and British people will understand us this way. Yeah, but it yeah, was yeah. all fake. No one ever actually spoke like that. Just new. Sure. People. I don't care though. The, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. better than the British accents uh, also. Okay. All right. I think we are done with uh, part uh, gap and uh, alternative internet, so we should um, 
probably move on to geopolitics and maybe Galkovsky. So you said that you listened to our episode on Dmitry Galkovsky. Is that right? Duh. Um, I, it's it's kind of I should just I should just bite the bullet and learn Russian for someone who already knows Serbian. It, it would probably yeah. be like very very easy compared to other languages, but it's a shame he hasn't been translated. Kirill uh, translated some tidbits yeah, of bit. Galkovsky. But you, but you also said like it has that quality that Russian literature has. I don't think it's just Russian literature. Like sure, you know uh, where European lit good european literature when you translate it it definitely loses something and um like there's nothing more painful than reading a german text that's been translated into english especially if it was written by a professor like that's always very harsh but even if you read something like um the cervantes um don quixote everyone who whom i know i'm learning spanish at the moment but every every spanish speaker i know says Like the the translations never measure up to the original, and basically every European nation says that about their literature, and I think there's something to it. You said that you lived in Serbia. No, I mean um, Serbian was my first language, just spe speaking in the home. That's where my oh, parents. Oh, you're Serbian. Um, yeah, yeah, ethnically, oh. um, but I was just born and raised um, here, and. No, I haven't lived there. I've been back. I've visited family and stuff like that in um, Serbia, yeah. Hrvatska, and say jebem cimater. Natural. Do you say so... is that uh, right? Uh, because I'm training yeah, to perfect. say it uh, like, for Nikola Sala. Sure. You said it I have. Yeah, I haven't really talked to a Serbian or Croat, uh, so I'm trying <laughs> to <laughs> impress him. All uh, right. Um, It's uh, really interesting that you are the second Australian that we have on our podcast and you are also immigrant and are not of uh, native Australian stock. Uh, is Australia basically a nation of uh, recent uh, immigrants? If you ask any of the original stock, they'll say no, because they still think of it very much as mm, Anglo-Celtic. There were a lot of... Um, There were a lot of Irish con convicts and Scots and so on as well, um, and Welsh and, and stuff like that. So if you ask them, they'll say they are the original Australians and all the more recent arrivals are, well, more recent arrivals. And maybe like if they lean right, they kind of, like their right wing, they kind of resent that a bit. Now, reflecting upon Australia is kind of weird because I think it's definitely the best Anglosphere country Like if you can travel anywhere, just come here. I've heard people say that Canada is very similar, just the opposite in the sense that it's cold. Like it's a cold Australia, but in a way they're very much like they're sparsely inhabited, but they have like a very good social safety net and the culture isn't crazy. It's kind of derivative of American and European culture. Nothing goes on, so it's kind of very quiet. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know. Australia... I think Australians are more ballsy and... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. In yeah, some sense. Yeah, yeah more macho than and then, Canadians. Like, New Zealand is fine, but it's basically just like... It looks a lot more like Europe, the landscape does. It doesn't have this unique desert, like dry feeling Australia does. Australia looks like no other place. 
And it it's interesting that that culture here is interesting. It's very easy in a way to feel that you fit in as soon as your children start speaking the accent and they lose their, you know, they, they lose their ancestral tongue, which most immigrants do. I mean, most subs here did. Uh, my parents didn't allow that to happen. Yeah, it's interesting to reflect on that. Like you said, Amy Therese, she, she talked about her, the Lebanese half of her family on your podcast, but like, I don't know if she knows a word of Arabic. Um, I don't believe that so, yeah, because it's yeah. interesting. It's like people, it's really people, sad also. Hold a, people hold that like it's a point of pride if you're uh, half Italian or something here or whatever. Um, even though it was, I suppose, hard for wogs when they first arrived. That's what they used to call them, Greeks and Italians after the war. Um, but now, yeah, people are very much like, yeah, I'm half Italian, but they can't say any Italian words. They just like Italian food. Which everyone yes. does. So it's not it's just like point. Sopranos uh, when they yeah, yeah, yeah. imagine themselves to be Italians, but they are actually Americans. Actually, can you answer this question that we asked uh, Amy Therese about uh, diasporas and your and how do you see those various diasporas? What is your favorite Australian ethnic uh, diaspora, and in, in what way? I think diasporas are kind of doomed people. <sighs> There's something very tragic about living in a place, but especially if you're keyed into the politics like I am, you kind of recognize that it's not your homeland and you're, you don't have the same loyalty to it that other people will have. But it's still because it's just where you grew up. It's the place you feel most familiar, the most comfortable. Like I was raised by the sea here, luckily, in a pretty like middle class household. And yeah, well, like when I travel back to Europe, it's a thrill and I'll probably move there and live there at some point again. Diasporas are doomed because if they remain politically active and they have a sense of identity, then the fact is you return to your homeland, like you return to the motherland. And in a way, it's all very foreign to you. And so all that holds you there is an identity and a political idea. But the people, the people in a way are not fully foreign, but they are different. And so in a way, your homeland has become has become a place where you don't feel the same familiarity as if you or your ancestors, whatever had stayed. So I feel that I feel kind of tragic. I mean, I held on to Serbian, which most like Serbian kids of my generation here didn't they like know a few words, or they can understand it when it's spoken, but they can't speak, they can't read. And it's the same with basically everyone else like Italians, there are no more Italians that speak Italian here, basically, unless they're very old, Greeks and so on. What's my favorite diaspora group? Yeah, not a diaspora, but maybe ethnic group like Indians or Chinese. See, that's, that what, is... I, that's what I was kind of trying to say before. In a weird way, it's, very, it's a very easy place to just fade into the background. Yeah. Your kids go off to school. They no longer know the language. And so... So they and, are not yeah. of their ethnic group uh, anymore. Yeah, yeah. It, like, I like, see. Yeah, this is what I'm saying. Like, it's a place where, if you want to think about it this way, even though like everyone on the right wing here disagrees because they think there's such a horrible colored menace or whatever. Actually, if you look at it in comparison to Britain, where South Asians, as they call them, and you know Muslims from other parts and 
you know, from the African parts of what was once the empire from the Commonwealth, they still retain an identity and they still retain the sense of like, these people conquered my ancestors and they will always be different from me. And I'm not English, even if I can be British and they maintain a language and they maintain a religion. And it's like very, yeah, it's like, it's, mm, it's very still a strong sense of being here if anything, in a way, probably it's the one Anglosphere country where they got that right. I don't know exactly why it is, but here, most people kind of seem to assimilate. Yeah, I, but what is the like... attraction? What is the attraction of uh, Australia to live on the end of the world uh, with uh, uh, slow internet, with kangaroos and aboriginals? And what is the mystique of Australia other than maybe some middle class money? What is Australian culture that is so enticing to ethnic uh, migrants? Oh, I don't know. It's interesting how to explain it. I mean, like... I, I've said, I think there is something very distinctive about the landscape and I think it probably has the best beaches in the world. Um, but that's not really it. Like you're asking, what is it about the people and the culture? Um, I don't know. The people are like very unassuming or I guess they used to be. It's quite a casual culture. You don't feel like there are too many expectations on you. They're not snobs like the British. They're not um uneducated not uneducated but like they're not ignorant of history like um the americans yeah it's like an interesting mix it's like a mean it's like um it's like the mean point the mean average between european conditions of living but more relaxed american kind of we're not bowed down under the heavy weight of this history it's still something new it's almost lazy, but the laziness can become addictive. It's probably not a good place to live if you want to be productive, like live a really productive life. You can run a business or whatever, but politics is hard to engage with from here. There's something about the climate and the soil and like the spirit of like Aboriginal life still lingers or something that makes yeah, people probably that's, want to like uh, what lie down on the beach. And yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Half gasoline to relax. Yeah, it's really interesting. I really wish to visit Australia one day. I always wanted to. Uh, Russians uh, like it here. Actually, all Europeans like it here. Germans really like it here because that's another thing. When you come here, people might be a bit curious, but it's like one place where the Germans, for instance, can go. And like, you know how Germans travel everywhere in Europe? And when they know you're a German tourist, like as soon as you open your mouth, they immediately look at you a little differently. <laughs> like there's that thing here that doesn't exist at all. So the Germans fucking love it. They throng the beaches, turning red in the sun and uh, they love it. They would all move to live like in, in the suburbs close to me if they could. Let's talk about Australian empire and Australian colonization, because when I was in Thailand, there was a distinct feeling that uh, Thailand or touristy parts of it are colonized by Australians, by the Aussies, because there is lots of them, lots of Australian businesses, and they love to go to Thailand in general. What type of person loves to leave already fit for beach and sea life Australia to uh, chill in Thailand for what reason I don't really get it 
I guess Australia is an expensive place to live. I mean, like it's a developed place, so yeah. I don't know. Like, gay tourists want to go and find like foreign, like a foreigner to have sex with, or lots of foreigners, or like cheap, cheap drink, cheap prostitutes, cheap consumer goods. Prozis go to yeah. Thailand. Yeah, that's true. I mean, like there is no like Australian empire in like South Asia as much as they might wish. Though you do hit on something like that's kind of the reverse of the truth because I was talking about Europeans who come here and diaspora groups. That's the thing. Like at the moment, let's say for the past thirty years, that's kind of been their worry. They're kind of like the Chinese, the East Asians, and the South Asians. They're coming here and they'll take over. The whole country will change. Like the demography, yeah. and the demography is changing. Um, I don't know what they're gonna do about it or what they can do at this point. Um, but yeah, it's it's that that's kind of the big thing for them. They think we're gonna become a Chinese colony. I always thought the answer to this was very very simple. Australia should just have nuclear weapons. I mean, it has uranium. It could probably, like, I read somewhere. I remember some like geopolitical literature. Japan and then Australia are the states in the world that could develop a bomb from scratch the fastest. Like they could have it in something like less than half a year if they just made the decision. So yeah, I, I always thought that that's that's probably in Australia's future if it doesn't want to be a colony of some kind because the U.S. won't protect it for that much longer. Yeah, but Australians are not allowed to probably. They don't have much independence of some sort to develop nuclear weapons. But as you see now, all things change, and when the empire's eyes are directed inward at internal enemies, that's an opportunity for many different groups and many different people, and it's an opportunity to try many new things. I'm not saying it's there already, but this conversation about how Australia should be a nuclear power has basically been going on for. 20 years now at least um and it's something they kind of never stop talking about a small minority so i don't know maybe one day who's gonna stop them i mean like you said it's at the end of the world most people don't know yeah. where it is the only people who would protest that much are probably like like china definitely wouldn't want that but who else would protest you know like as yeah. israel showed you can kind of develop them on the sly and you basically get away with it and you don't ever need to openly admit it even though everyone knows it's true everyone knows you have nukes as uh, dmitry galkovsky is postulating is that the mm -hmm. uh, soviet union got its uh, nuclear weapons uh, thanks to british spies who transferred uh, american secrets yeah. to soviet union it's quite known actually i i um, I, I love conspiracy theory. like conspiracy literature is probably one of my favorite genres even though i find it all kind of hard to believe or whatever i it's think the it's, most realistic think, literature there is yes but in a way the problem with the problem with conspiracy literature is like it's experienced decay as well where now if you like look at the us where this is going to be the next four years. You have like the QAnon crowd confronting the BlueAnon crowd, like Democrat QAnon. What basically. is BlueAnon? It's like the name that they've basically given to like conspiracy theorists of the left who think there was Russian collusion and like 
Vlad was like Putler was um was controlling <laughs> Trump's like yeah like he had his he, yeah he he was a puppet on strings or whatever yeah so like these people they say now blue anon them to like the QAnon crowd like mm, they, I they have, have a, these crazy conspiracy theories I actually have a theory kind of um I think, um, and many people don't want to agree with me, um, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing, but I think the next like global political mass movement is going to be some derivative of uh, QAnon type. It's going to be some new age, healing crystal, anti-vax, hippie, national socialist, whole foods, sky to patriotism. Yeah. Um, um, because, simply because there is no way to be, you know, uh, a rational dissident because um, the system has complete control over over academia, over media. So uh, the system has complete control over what gets to be defined as objective reality, what gets to be defined as science. And if you try to uh, be a dissident and within the epistemic realm, of uh, science and rationality and objectivity and studies and data and facts then you're gonna lose because your enemy controls this and the only way is uh, to create this kind of mythology that is not based yeah. on 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 uh, science and um object level facts look i mean like i i will i'm sure you'll let me plug um uh, the podcast that i'm starting at the end of the episode but this is kind of basically what I think the next horizon is as well. Something has to confront the very dangerous, basically like nihilistic and like the, it's thrown us into a death spiral, this American theology of freedom, of human rights. It's basically materialistic, but then it has weird factors of like quasi-Christian, like, like divine importance like they place so much importance now on democracy like our democracy like it's this precious jewel it's it's actually just a process it's a weird bureaucratic process that the british developed to try and mediate between different aristocratic factions like in their own country and then it was exported and the americans made it their own in a way and and want to export it to the rest of the world it's not it's not magic it there's no reason to like there's there's it's not exciting it's really very boring and so like you say the study of what's going on and what horizons are available can't be undertaken like what possibilities there are can't be undertaken within the hegemonic discourse but the hegemonic discourse is very boring like i saw like hillary clinton has started her own podcast now and oh. I have to listen to this shit. I bet, I bet it, in a way it'll be good. Like it'll be funny in a way, but these things get very boring, very fast listening to every single channel on the American news being like these insurrectionists in the Capitol, blah, 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 blah. How many, like, and none of them actually go down and do that thing that American journalists used to pride themselves on. Like ask like Vox Pop, you know what I mean? Like go among the crowd and ask them like, why are you here? What do you believe in? Whatever. The independent journalists who actually did that, most of whom were on like the dot bag left or the far left or whatever. Like you say, like they, they were asking these questions and the answers they got back, like filtered through these people's QAnon beliefs are actually really sad. You, you hit on something 
you hit on something prescient when you said like it's like the next thing in conspiracy theory is going to be like a magical crystal that heals you there were people there who were saying stuff like um yeah i have terminal cancer and i'm like hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt uh, medical debt and like my life is falling apart but the elites um the elites have the cure to cancer already and now is the day like this is when we're going to stop the steal and when trump like it, like gets rid of all of these like lizard people he will make like the cure available and that's funny in a way but it's also so that's really heartbreaking like i don't know what to say i feel so sorry for the person who believes that like they like they have no hope which is why they latch onto what is a fantastic and self-destructive myth and yeah i i basically think what has to happen now is we need the right myths to mediate between stuff that's totally self-destructive and will lead nowhere like the idea that a few thousand trump supporters will seize the capital and they will stop the steal which of course anyone who doesn't know donald trump but just has watched him for the last four years anyone could see that he would abandon them like as soon as he was told to by his advisors and that he wouldn't pardon any of them that he would pardon bankers instead for like tax fraud and like that kind of stuff is self-destructive the media narrative or the hegemonic narrative is very boring almost everyone is bored of it now there has to be like a good conscious control of like myth which is maybe not conspiratorial but yeah but but still provide something people can latch onto and is believable but is colorful enough and inspires people and uh, yeah i think in a way podcasts are, are, have kind of been the i don't know what you'd say like it but like they've been leading the charge on that and and because academia can't do that anymore academia is the hegemonic narrative about liberalism and democracy and so on and it's not accessible to people so I think podcasts are basically where it's at. Was that your intention with uh, this rebrand? Yeah, yeah. So uh, a good friend of mine uh, who's, who's we've, we have done like podcast style, like book breakdowns and book reviews and like philosophical chats on, on his YouTube channel before um, with a whole load of other people. It used to be called the Euro Bureau of literature literatura and um that has kind of fallen apart for now and his qualifications are in uh christian theology and i don't have formal qualifications in that but i have my interest in schmidt and in political theology and so this is the kind of stuff we're discussing myth mysticism the like the horizons of truth official truth um american theology and basically why it needs to be replaced why it's no longer like fit for purpose speaking of schmidt uh <clears throat> schmidt renaissance uh, let's uh, talk yes. about that um, yes that's an interesting topic like how people um started talking about schmidt again in the last five years or so um and schmidt scholarship has taken off in the last 15 years or so again yeah. but um still um most people have a very bad understanding of Schmidt and don't understand what he was really trying to say. 
um it gets boiled down in public discourse to this stupid you know uh friend good enemy bad thing which is not at all what he was saying um so yes it's interesting i think um actually the only country that has proper schmidt scholarship right now is china and it's uh, kind of sucks because i can't read most of it because it's written in chinese um so yes um american schmidt scholarship it, 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 it kind of sucks actually um oh they, it really sucks. yeah they mostly just use schmidt as a you, you know you have these uh the left reception the marxist reception yeah. of schmidt and um like uh, Chantal Mouffe and so on. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they are basically just uh, appropriating Schmidt to say that actually communist street violence is like actually good um, because it's, uh, God, what was the, ter the term she used? I think antagonistic democracy or antagonistic pluralism or something like that, um, where they yeah, developed yeah. a theory um, that just like using street violence is good because it's democratic and so uh yeah that's just retarded yeah, it is retarded it's very it's very 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 boring i mean like most of the schmidt scholarship as you say has been left it it's not even just the past 15 years i mean i think people like this basically started working on schmidt soon after he died i think some of the earliest things i had to cite when i was writing my um honest thesis on schmidt was you know from the 90s that yeah they've been talking about him and taking him apart in this very like sterile particular way where they draw out something like the friend enemy distinction or they draw out something more interesting like political theology you know his his idea basically that within all the political concepts of modernity you find echoes and they're basically based on models of mm -hmm. christian theology and like original christian distinctions and they kind of take that idea, but they water it down massively. And so in a way, because for them, for lo a lot of this contemporary left scholarship, it's basically about taking what they like or what they think they like about liberalism, which they think is pluralism and like tolerance of worship and things like this, which is we know, I mean, any Russian knows this just like because of their intimacy with, with American imperialism and probably with British imperialism too, like there's a consciousness of that, you know, that liberalism isn't that tolerant. It's not tolerant at all. It only allows tolerance when it can fully subsume and destroy and water something down. Obviously, as soon as it's threatened by anything, um, it, it, it destroys it, it attacks it. Um, so I think that's all like, all that left Schmidt scholarship is very boring. Some of the right wing Schmidt scholarship isn't really worth reading very much either. I, like you, am aware that this, the admiration for Schmidt and Schmidt studies has taken off big time in China. At some point, I'd like to ask one of my contacts, like some of this stuff has been translated into English, but they very but, little sadly yeah very little and it only happens very slowly but they should be doing it because there should be conversation between um there should be conversation between chinese and and european russian and, and so on iranian intellectuals and thinkers and whatever amateur thinkers as well podcasters <laughs> about what's going on here like yeah applying I mean, the critique to to americanism and to the pax americana yeah, I mean, if the Chinese are going to rule the world anyway, then I uh, 
hope to get a gig as a court philosopher teaching Schmidtianism to the yeah. Chinese mm. Communist Party. Yeah. <laughs> Doros, are you a cine futurist? I, I think I kind of um I, I lop as as like a, a big China admirer all the time. Yeah. My proper position is basically like you don't need to idealize China just because you hate America or you hate what America represents. Um anyway, like people these days are like after COVID or whatever, they won't take you seriously if you just go out and you're like, China's the best. So like yeah, you have to ease people into these things and into like critiques of America because in in a way, like especially in the Anglosphere, part of what last year has resulted in is like anti-China sentiment, basically. Um am I am I a Sino-futurist? Um I, I would definitely like to see them exercise more power. I mean, um but their problem is basically like the problem Germany faced and the problem Russia faced. Um, the the Anglo-Saxons control all the offshore islands of the world. So to attack them directly, it's not just that you need a navy, but you need an incredibly sophisticated, yes, industrial base and like a lot of money and weapons to funnel to people in their you know, like in their sphere of influence and that basically means and they try but like both the germans and especially the soviets tried this like they tried funneling money and arms to to communists in south america and latin america but it kind of never really went anywhere no one has been able to threaten american hegemony in their own backyard and you need to control your own backyard to have an empire abroad so I don't know. Like they, they have China. They have China ringed in. They have, they have Japan on their side. Um, Philippines and, uh, also. Philippines is an American colony. Um, they're kind of they're they're new Indonesia. idea. Yeah. It's it's not exactly new. I mean, it's been in discussion among scholarly, you know, geopolitic people for for fifteen twenty years. Is like we should pivot away from China. China's growing too fast we should pivot towards like India. India should be our big um, um, Asian ally and uh, like we should help them to grow or whatever. But I think the cat's already out of the bag. When, when, they, when they allowed China into the World Trade Organization and they basically like, like let it parasitize all of this American capital, they, they, allowed, they allowed something that they probably shouldn't have allowed if we're thinking about their own good, like if we're thinking about American empire, that was a mistake. And I don't think they can take it back. Maybe they can mitigate it, but they can't really take it back. So like, will China dominate in the future? Who knows, man? You can dream, I guess. <laughs> there will be a battle over Africa already in the works. And uh, China is doing pretty good in Africa. Chinese and have won uh, Africa, haven't they? Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They I mean, basically yeah. won it. And yeah. uh, now Africa is uh, irrelevant in most uh, people's minds. It doesn't exist. It's starving black children. But actually, it will be quite important because it's uh, the greatest source of manpower in the world. So will it, be, will it factor in uh, Chinese dominance, uh, their lordship over Africa? 
Yeah, I think it's kind of central, isn't it? I mean, not not just people, resources too. I mean, like, yeah, sure. Uh, I have I I haven't made a study of this, but like the European way of interfacing colonially with Africa is kind of different from the way they do it in Southern Europe and like the Balkans, where where it's also been going on, and basically the difference is that when they go to Europe. Like there is this, like there is this basically fundamental respect where, like, they don't provide you with slave conditions and like take out the whips. But in Africa, apparently, they actually do that. Like they have like Chinese, like, well, it's like a capitalist slave master because you get a wage. But still, like they they take out the whips and like they punish you if you're a recalcitrant worker. And yeah, I think I think it's gonna be pretty central. Um, but that's why the Americans want India on side. They they basically want to break up this, I think what the Chinese call their string of pearls, which is like um, the naval bases and fortifications that stretch uh, across South Asia to, to Africa and, and Arabia. Um, they, they kind of want to interdict that. And um, I don't know whether, whether they, they'll manage to do that, but that's one thing we should all be watching, what, what goes on in India, whether they become... What they've never been, which is, they were traditionally an ally of the Soviets. Let's see if the Americans can uh, pull something out of the bag there. Have you ever considered yourself a part of dissident right? I mean, I, we're all kind of part of a dissident right sphere, no? But probably, I don't know, but like, I'm not, I'm not very right wing. I'm not really right wing at all. Like, I would probably be... I, I think I was like raised in very shit lib surroundings, like most of the people I went to school with and some of the people I still know and like people in my family, like they're into yoga and crystals and all of this shit. Like they're that like they're Marianne Williamson kind of archetype, if you get what I mean. And so that probably rubbed off on me. Like I do think people should try and get along as much as is possible, but but I I just can't interface with the left seriously because they're all materialists except for this like weird new agey woo woo pretending <laughs> to be a buddhist like we're gonna worship through doing yoga on a weekly basis or whatever which is obviously not serious yeah, if it's religion, it's bad religion it's like a very bad form it's like simplistic and yeah and half of them on, and, and, and half of them are becoming QAnon anti-vax types anyway yeah, anti-vax was always a big part of this, like like the purity of the body and the body is a temple. It's all just like a very bad like mistranslation of like the Vedas and and of like genuine Buddhist tradition, like because you have to remember, like in the post-war period when they were basically selling this to Europeans as like the new thing, you know, how to liberate yourself from capitalism while working at a Swiss bank, um, you know they still had to translate it in a way that would carry across. And the way they translated it is basically like, oh, if you can sometimes give charity, that's a good thing. And like, don't, don't eat GMO foods and um, do yoga because it will like spiritually purify you. But the fact that you work for Lehman Brothers or like, you know, Goldman Sachs or whatever, like you don't have to quit your job or give up your possessions or whatever. So that's like a really bad form of religion. But otherwise, the left 
like the traditional left, the Marxist left, the materialists. So I like you guys are Russian. I, I was raised with enough like of a sub inflection, like cultural inflection that I am also like fascinated by and drawn by mysticism. I basically think if you don't attend to spirit in some way in your politics, then um, you're just doomed to kind of repeat the mistakes that we say, like we, we focus on America and liberalism and capitalism for. Um, but, you know, the USSR wasn't great. Maybe it was better than the US. Maybe people look at the US now and would prefer it or something, but it wasn't good either, any more than fascism was good. They, they, yeah, they were like, they were very modern. They were very, they were very materialistic. And so otherwise though, like I say, I, I would basically be a member of like the left, like these deep ecology people who think we need to save the trees. They're my people. I basically like believe in that, <laughs> but I think, but I think they need to be saved with bombs. I think they need to be saved by like destroying the enemies of the trees. We can't yeah. coexist <laughs> with enemies of the trees. They must be you know shot off to another planet or whatever what other parts of serbian heritage other than mysticism did you inherit that's kind of automatic though i mean like for most europeans this is kind of what i what i was saying in the beginning about the anglosphere and australia as well here there isn't a pressure to learn history like you find yourself in this weird sunny pocket of time where for the most part maybe things are changing now but for the most part things were plentiful maybe a bit expensive but still like you live in a paradise like a warm paradise and people are very people are very sympathetic and very like pleasing and casual and nice and there are a few expectations on you um it's like you're in an island of time and what's outside of it doesn't oppress you at all in europe from like a young age, you learn about like all this suffering and grief. And so maybe not everyone, but like you have this very distinct European archetype, which probably is me, which is like born a fatalist. And it's just like, everything's going to die. Everything falls apart. Um, there are things you can fight for and like projects you can do, but because they'll all die, you kind of don't have this orientation toward like, happy rational optimism where like don't worry about what went wrong in history like we have the right model now and and it'll all be fine so yes about the civil war about like the rest of our history and attending to national suffering i think those are all very vital topics obviously the subs are obsessed with their own history but that's true of most europeans definitely true of russians no and the history, um, the history oppresses you at the same time as it sometimes can inspire you and motivates you and gives you a bit of perspective on the fact that other people are different. They don't all just want to be like secular atheists worshiping at McDonald's or whatever the Americans think we all want to be. Have you, we ended the Schmidt discussion actually, and. Uh... I wanted to ask about the Chinese studies of Schmidt. It's very interesting. Yeah. I've never actually heard that Chinese are interested in this kind of thing. And when it started and why? They are very interested in Schmidt. Um, 
I have actually, um, I was listening to a German lecture on YouTube. The professor who read that lecture, he uh, told an anecdote at the beginning that uh, he was teaching political theory and he had two Chinese uh, foreign students in his class and um, they were never participating in um, discussions because uh, this was a class that was taught in English and they never participated in the class. And um, so he called them to his office and he talked to them like, why aren't you talking at all? And they were like, they don't speak English. Um, they don't want, they didn't want to learn English. They only wanted to learn. Um, and they said uh, verbatim that the only foreign languages that one should learn is like Latin to understand um, the universal empire of the world and to and German so they can reach mid in the original uh, so it's interesting yeah that's extremely interesting and they are really venerating um, uh, Schmidt uh, which is rightly so I would say because he's I think the most underrated thinker of the 20th century what um, is the German consensus on Schmidt is that um, he was a Nazi maybe no um, it's uh, a bit more different than that so yeah most people are like no Schmidt you don't need to reach Schmidt he was a Nazi um, but it depends a bit on uh, for example um, I uh, law students um, they just read Schmidt uh, as a law scholar and um, nobody ever talks about that he's a Nazi like uh, <laughs> among um, in the law profession uh, they just read him as a regular brilliant uh, scholar of constitutional law and they never even discuss his uh, like actual political views or something but yeah in the realm of political theory or philosophy yes uh, in germany or in large parts of uh, europe you just have like yeah schmidt some kind of nazi we don't care that's kind of what i was saying at the beginning when i talked about how the germans don't live under german law like you, like, I don't mean that they have like Anglo common law. What I kind of meant was more like a, a country which was so like a country defeated and rebuilt by the allies and not just given like a formal constitution and basic law by them, but like given this weird cultural impetus to be to like forget some of their best thinkers or like some of their best thinkers are taboo. Like what you say about Schmidt is tr clear. Like that's also true, but they say that of um, Heidegger. I mean, and and he was one of the greatest Germans ever born. I think. Well, well, well Heidegger is not as vilified. It's actually a point that I uh, always make to leftists that it's uh, completely arbitrary um, how they decide that someone is a Nazi and shouldn't be studied. Because it is um, arbitrary because Heidegger was a bigger Nazi or he was more convinced yes, in a way yeah, yeah, that Nazis yes, might yeah, lead yeah. somewhere. Schmidt fell out with them very, very quickly because uh, Schmidt he... was never a Nazi in the first place. Uh, like if you read his diaries, um, like mm. early in early 33, he was like writing, Oh fuck, that Hitler idiot is actually gonna become leader. Fuck, I gotta fuck off to Switzerland or something. And uh, like, like literally from day one. Um, he collaborated with them just because he wanted, you know, to uh, a good job for him and his family. And uh, it was just what he did. And uh, Schmidt was never a Nazi. Like, actually, he was actually never a Nazi. And um, Heidegger, on the other hand, he was 
as you said, way more uh, Nazi. He gifted uh, Mein Kampf to his brother. Um, he was a voluntary member of the Nazi party from quite early. He participated in the academic Nazi organizations and so on. But he was personal friends with um, people that could help rehabilitate him, like Hannah Arendt, for example, who, whom he screwed when she was a student. And uh, and you had these uh, respected people like Derrida in France was a big Heidegger fan and a personal friend. And Schmidt uh, didn't have friends among those people who were influential in post-war Europe. Like, um, for example, f for example, Adorno. Uh, he was. Um, it was basically Adorno who made sure that uh, Schmidt never got a teaching gig again after the war. Yeah, and it was was it Leo Strauss who um, he he was in conversation with Schmidt Schmidt during during like the Weimar period, basically. Um, but like he was very worried by Schmidt's um, like juridical work, work on the law, and he he wrote a very famous. Um, they had an interplay, but he like wrote a famous tract, basically like countering parts of Schmidt's uh, position. Yeah, it's very odd. Like Schmidt, Schmidt was an odd character. I kind of feel like all of these German, what they used to call like the conservative revolutionary school. Dugan is actually um, fascinated with all of them. Um, but these thinkers basically, some of them treaded the edge of saying certain things about race, but what immediately, what first drew them to the Nazis in a sense, but then like immediately repulsed them was, they were like, you don't understand when we're talking about race, we're talking about this like almost abstract, like racial spirit, which like any like potentially anyone could be born with the German spirit. You've made it into this like very vulgar thing about like bloodlines and measuring head sizes. And that's not what we meant by race. And yeah, in they way... were like, yeah, that they were like HPD artists with their IQ tables. <laughs> yeah. So like very quickly, like these very austere German intellectuals who like knew all this history and philosophy, they were like, oh, this is disgusting. This is very vulgar. This is like, like, yeah, this is like if this is basically the Soviet version of Marxism, like they haven't attended to Marx well enough. This is just the rabble basically seizing on concepts they don't understand. Um, Schmidt also had two Serbian wives. Yeah. An interesting tidbit. So he had good taste, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Do you plan to uh, have a Serbian wife as well? Do I plan to have a Serbian wife? Yeah. I plan to have many. Oh. <laughs> Why settle for one? I mean, like, like this is like one sense in which, like, the you know, us, like, we're all in the dissident, right? But I'm just very bored by people who are like, ah, oh, I don't want to hear about Islam because Islam is like this great spiritual enemy of Europe, and we have nothing to learn about them, and it's disgusting, this barbaric religion or whatever. And I'm like, well, actually, like, if you think about the history of the faith that you say you hold so dear to you'll you'll see that there was a development in its history and like you can change christianity like why not just allow polygamy again why not just allow like many wives which is the way we're kind of heading anyway except not like not one man marrying many wives but like a very small number of men fucking all the women through dating apps and like 
this massive group of incels. That's where we're heading already. So like, why not just formalize this into like harems for the successful men? Like that sounds like it would work. Or maybe maybe I'm imagining it, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, okay. So you want to become a successful yoga instructor that fucks all <laughs> yes. the uh, leftist uh, spiritual <laughs> women. I see. So that's like that's gonna be my magnum opus. I'm gonna like write the Marianne <laughs> Williamson style book, like telling yeah. women who do yoga why they should like join a harem. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, actually, let's talk about that. Why do you want a harem? There is a famous uh, song from the Soviet era. It's a fake, uh, you know, Eastern song about uh, uh, some imaginary sultan that has many wives. And a Soviet uh, man is fantasizing about having uh, like three wives. But then he remembers that uh, he will also have three... Fuck. How do you say Tiosha in English? Uh, mothers in law. Yeah. yeah, he will also have three mothers in law and all the troubles. Uh, That's the counter troubles. argument. That's the yeah, counter yeah, argument. Yeah, yeah. And three, like, many brothers in law. And, yeah, and so sure, on. Like, sure, sure, sure. Uh, do you um, really was, want that? Uh, or... <laughs> no, I don't. No, I was joking. I don't yeah, want sure. many wives. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't even know if I want one. I, I suppose you could say there are postmodern views of like love and courtship in that basically I think if you want to live out a good marriage like on the model of you have children and it's it's successful it doesn't end in divorce or whatever and you can stand each other then it has to be contractual and it has to be like arranged by the family because if you get together with someone out of passion and there's just so much like lust and then love comes out of that like sex ends up poisoning the relationship because eventually the man wants it and she doesn't or like there are children on the way and then that's a dry spell yeah. or like you just get bored of each other or you grow old and so like in the space where there was so much passion and love in the beginning there are just like all of these thorns and this deep abyss and this like slow resentment and hatred just building 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 that's it's why like, I basically think like ma proper marriage should be like ev almost every society did. It's like arranged. You arrange all of it beforehand. If you both die, who gets the children? Like if one of you dies, what the arrangements are, there's a dowry. There's like a provision for like, if there is a divorce or whatever, um, like, like who carries the family name and all this shit. And then it doesn't matter. Like, cause you only fuck for children and then, you sleep in separate beds like you don't like you don't have to share the fullness of your life with that person and you can just yeah you can fall in love and have like other affairs on the side that sounds absolutely perfect to me that sounds like that sounds like the dream that sounds like the only thing that can basically work it's like, like the, uh... think about it like the reason why your friendships last and the reason why friendships are successful and you have friends for your whole life is because you don't fuck them like if you fucked your friends you wouldn't be friends for very long yeah <laughs> no isn't it true yeah but uh, the friends are men you know there is some distinctions uh but oh it's like uh, bronze age pervert says uh, that uh, fucking your wife is incest because she's uh, your relative <laughs> right she's your family and it's wrong <laughs> 
uh, I get what you're saying, but isn't that uh, yeah, some I mean, things like, uh, right. need to be proved by history? And uh, it actually uh, was there a time when there was certainly a time when wives and husbands weren't as close to each other. They didn't profess such uh, passion and emotion to each other. And they probably slept in separate beds uh, also, like we see in like old time Hollywood movies. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. But but infidelity wasn't part of the deal i, I don't think so it's uh... i think it was it was part of the deal f- look like only people of a certain class obviously i don't mean like most peasants who are still in these contractual arrangements a lot of the time sometimes they married for love or whatever or because you just knocked someone up so the village forced you to marry them but um but like it, like the aristocracy definitely and also the middle classes too like a hundred years ago yeah that was totally normal actually like it's it's not normal but if you have enough italian friends you basically understand how an italian marriage works and that is like a lot of them fuck other people and it's just something that's not said but everyone knows it happens but uh, women do also right yes these days women do also so yeah and uh, that could result in some very bad outcomes of your marriage because when women fuck some someone else they might easily go to him or have another kid out of wedlock and stuff like that that's why it was never practiced basically because it's uh, it's a ruin to uh, family structure but uh, I, I get your pessimism about family families because uh, it was kind of destroyed in the last century. So there is the last no... century, but like that's the thing. Like, what really people like worry about porn and all this kind of stuff. And if you just think back a little bit further, you see that what basically destroyed the family was love. Like the whole idea of romantic love, which got going in the like 18th and 19th centuries, this whole idea of the modern novel, the sentimental novel, where it's not just a hero. He goes out and actualizes himself. Maybe he finds a woman, um, like he takes her and, and they have children or whatever. No, he's like this foppish dandy and he's like professing his love and am I actually good enough for her? And like, she's the only one and she feels the same. And like, they're these star-crossed lovers mm, or whatever. Nah, it's like, I, I, I think you're exaggerating this a bit because- Wait, 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 wait a right, minute. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just finish and say that sure. in, in a way, I think like, especially for like English culture, which exported it to other places, I guess the sentimental novel began there and in and, and France. Like this whole idea was basically like trickled down to the bottom and it started to inform like lower forms of culture. And so now the idea that you would marry like in a, any Western or European country, the idea that you would marry out of a contract, like an understanding between two people um, or maybe two families or clans or whatever, that which held for most Europeans for like all time <laughs> and most societies generally, um, that's like unthinkable. Like, what are you talking about? We know what marriage is for. It's to sanctify the bond between like two people who ideally speaking, like they're the one, like she's the one and he's the one. And they're like, there's no one else. This is my soulmate. This is all 
bull- like this is all fiction. This is all based on fiction. It's all tripe. I remember when I was like uh, 15 years old, uh, I was quite romantic. So I was dumbfounded by the idea that I needed to look for an ideal second half. And uh, that person could uh, maybe my ideal wife lives in some remote uh, Polynesian island and I never see her. <laughs> I will never see her. Mm-hmm. And I was. Uh, really sad about it i <laughs> it was quite a, a drama for me to at 15 though, at 15 like aren't you sufficiently in love with yourself anyway like or oh. i mean like by the like by the time i was 15 i'm sure i had been lo- in love like five times or whatever and so like even if in love like again like what's what's the border between love and lust or just like passion being sure. fixated on a person sure. we idealize love as like it's this pure thing and you only feel it once and what would a 15 year old know of love like yes and some of that literature is really great and we like you can have a philosophical discussion about love and all this kind of stuff but on some level also like you shouldn't forget that we're apes and like when you're planning a society or like you think about how families should be formed, you shouldn't forget about what apes are. And like part of the nature of love and lust is that it never lasts forever. And it very quickly can often like lead into its exact opposite. Like love doesn't exist without hate and lust doesn't exist without repulsion. And so that's the flip side of like all this like romantic love literature, which isn't told like old people, sitting across from each other, very bitter and disgusted with each other, deeply unhappy, but they're, they're trapped. Yeah, um, so what I wanted to say is that this is all a bit exaggerated in the historical sense, because um, actually uh, you have in Europe, or um, most other um, realms, um, historically most people would have married for love simply because um, the point of marriage, of arranged marriages, in the sense of you have like economic t- or political ties between two families, uh, means that uh, these families would have to have some kind of economical and political influence uh, at first before they can think about such arrangements. And like poor peasants, they didn't have anything. They were serfs. Uh, often and they didn't have uh, any economic or political weight they could put behind the marriage so they had literally nothing to lose um, except if you like married the town prostitute or something but otherwise it wasn't very restricted and the revolutionary aspect of uh, romantic love it concerns mostly the aristocracy because for aristocrats it was unheard of to marry for love although it happened all the time um, because um, like if you a representative of some rich dynasty uh, you're the son of the duke or whatever then yes uh, your whole life is planned out before you're even born and uh, who you're gonna marry for like um, for taxes or for soldiers or whatever but um, and the revolutionary aspect is that um, the upper classes uh, ha- were getting this ideal of marrying for love but the lower classes they were always marrying for love or had like shotgun weddings because they were fucking and uh, the girl got pregnant so that was absolutely normal there was like uh, no um the lower classes were always in this um regard controlled yeah. um 
I, I get what you're saying, but I also do kind of disagree. Like I have to disagree and say that again, remember like when you're talking about most people throughout history, take European history, it's not that most people owned nothing, you know, like even a Saf maybe doesn't own land, but you don't have to be an aristocrat to have something. And so it's not just like in village societies as well, Saf's as well. It's not necessarily that you got married for love or lust or like, as you say, shotgun weddings happened all the time because apes, humans, whatever, can't control themselves, especially when they're young. Um, so like shotgun weddings were, if you want to call that a marriage of love, like I'm happy to concede that that's the case. But even on this lower stratum or this lower level, you you still families, even like village families, soft families, they did arrange to have like different members of the family married. Um, it like it depends, I guess, where you draw these lines between different marriage patterns in parts of Europe, because in some cases there was like very serious endogamy and in some cases exogamy. But that didn't mean that you as a young person necessarily had a choice like there, there was still an agreement, if not between you, your families, maybe between you and her family. Um, that doesn't mean like she didn't catch your eye or something, or there was like no lust, but it's not love. I really don't think that it was love. I really think that this like, the yes, definition what started is a very aristocratic obsession with rom like idealized romantic love. Yeah, yeah. This was basically filtered down to everyone through books like when books became more plentiful and everyone started to read and tv now and like and radio and all the rest of it like all our half our songs are about love they're all like ballads most of them shitty but like this is this is the point to which it's gotten even though it's like the final dregs of a cultural renaissance of a kind it's like yeah, we're, we're obsessed with this romantic idea. It's it wasn't just it might have been for aristocrats then, but everyone started reading this shit, and it wasn't good. Like it wasn't. It clearly wasn't good for anyone. Yeah, if you think about it, uh, modern songs are much more prone to to be love songs than songs of the past because love wasn't such a high class, tender, delicate feeling that it is now. It was uh, quite simple, like a peasant uh, wants to fuck uh, some broad and uh, he can't do that before he gets married. It was quite straightforward. Uh, and he is okay with living with her to the end of his life. Uh, but now it's uh, too complicated to work. And that's uh, what we are seeing now, all the divorces and stuff like that, because love is so complicated that it could change on a whim. I mean, that's I just liberalism. That's not yeah. romanticism, that's just liberalism. I, I think love is... Like love is love is gay. Like our obsession with romantic love is very like it's the gayest part of our culture. If people just kind of stopped obsessing with this, that's in a, like I don't I'm not a fan of rap. I don't listen to much rap or anything like that. But there's something I really respect about it, which is like it's about chains and bling and bitches and hoes, and it's just like it's not about like it's not about love. It's like it's a deep recognition of like the roots of actual human sentiment and the fact that like maybe you have an old lady but like eventually you grow bored of her and like she nags you and anyway she's like probably fucking someone else over there like she's she's gotten bored of you or you like 
you've disappointed her. That's human nature. Human nature isn't we're all gonna like match up in these beautiful pairs and like have these idealized lives. That's the scariest thing I've ever heard. Serbians confirmed to be black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense why Tupac Shakur migrated to Serbia in 1997 to rap there is such a thing now as Serbian rap again i don't listen to it but but i hear from sure. like some people here all yeah, music is rap but yeah i'm not surprised mm-hmm. uh actually what rap is is that it's not european in nature and uh, that's why they don't hold uh, all those uh, european conventions about marriage and love because it's strictly a european thing i think that's all right i I don't think i I don't think you should be too precious about what's european like that's another thing about the dissident right like all of these people with um like carved busts and like statues of roman emperors or whatever and as their avatar it's just like the past is maybe a rich field for research and like you can draw on things and you make a synthesis of something interesting in the present. But like, if you limit yourself to what Europe is now and was before, and that's all that you seek to draw on, first of all, you can never really have an empire, let alone a global one. Um, because everyone else will tell you to fuck off or, or like what you do doesn't appeal to them at all. Like you have to reach people where they are. And anyway, it's not really creative. Um, I guess like the best kind of rap probably would have some European influence in the sense that maybe it has like roots in, maybe it has like roots in jazz and then like ragtime and then whatever the fuck came before ragtime. And like, it has this interesting synthesis, whereas it can get very boring just... I don't know, reading the same book about romantic love and like listening to the same piece of European music. So mm. I don't think we should obsess too much about these maybe European and non-European distinctions. And talking about empires, uh, do you agree or disagree with uh, famous Turkish philosopher Paul Scala's notion of uh, American empire that will last a thousand years? Sorry, I find that really depressing. Like a thousand-year American, right? <laughs> yeah, you you could uh, I really just dismiss not. it. Like I really hope not. They've had what have they had? Not a hundred years. They've had less than a hundred years. Let's say, like since the Second World War, they've had what amounts to close to hegemony. Years. Yeah, um, and look at what they've done. Like, imagine giving them another 920 years. Like, it's not mischief. Do you know what I mean? Like, ev- like I don't I don't like the British Empire either, but, like, th- the British did at least have certain ideas about beauty and the synthesis of different kind of cultural forms. And, like, there were the beginnings of capitalism in that as well. So I, I don't want to glorify it, but, like, even, like, British mischief doesn't measure up to American, to Americanism. Um, So I, no, I hope not. I mean, like our ecology couldn't survive it. No culture could survive it. Probably people like as structures wouldn't survive it because we'd be replaced by like beings made of silicon who were walking around and replaced us. That's where America is oriented. 
I think Americans just suck at ruling over other people. They have like a working mechanism for incorporating foreigners into their polity and assimilating them. But they absolutely suck at like, you know, diplomacy and um, um, having subtle ways of controlling other countries and other peoples. They just can't do it. Their school of thought and psychology, uh, behaviorism. And Americans are behaviorists. They can only try to like train people. They always try to train people like they're animals, but uh, it doesn't work that way. And when it doesn't work, they get frustrated and they just start, you know, wrecking shit and bombing shit. And uh, it's all, uh, they just suck at colonialism. And Americans will never rule over the world in, in the long term. It's impossible. I remember what I said at the beginning, like they have this idea about themselves that everyone is looking like it doesn't matter what's going wrong in that country they're always like we must get america back on track so that it can be the leader of the free world again and 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 that shining city on the hill and blah 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 it's like they always like really think that the eyes of the world are on them like every peasant in india and in africa everyone's eyes are fixed on america like what will they do next even more um, um, even more actually it's worse they uh, are utterly convinced that every person in the world is an american deep down and uh, in every person in the world there is just a little american trying to get out waiting uh, to be let out yeah yeah and so and... when they bump against yeah so like you're right when they bump up against someone or some something people a state whatever which clearly doesn't feel that way like to give like I, I think this is sometimes understated. I mean, they speak about it sometimes on like the 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 anti-imperialist left or whatever. The fact that one big part of like the decision to bomb um, uh, to bomb Serbia over over like the whole Kosovo thing in '99 was this conviction that and and I guess like support for Bosnian Muslims as well. Like it it was this conviction that like we will show the Muslim world that like our American Imperium, it's not just for white people, like we will, we protect everyone and we want to get the Muslims on side. And it's like, like, I know we're looking back, um, like, hindsight is 2020, like you it's, it's, with hindsight, you can see how silly that is. But like, it really is such a sweet, naive idea that you're gonna s apparently save like a few Muslims in Europe, and therefore, like Arabians will be really happy suddenly to give up their religion for like Britney Spears, pop music, porn, and and like whatever passes for American culture. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's so naive. It's almost sweet. It's like the kind of thought a child would have. Yeah. Um, I have read an anecdote uh, actually that uh, is, uh, seemed utterly insane to me, but so there was like uh, during the NATO mission in Afghanistan, there was like a woman, uh, who was in, in charge, like, uh, I don't know, I don't remember what her exact posting was, something like a political officer or a public relations officer. And they had a problem uh, since in their sector, they had like um, two villages and they were in a blood feud. So they had like a brutal vendetta going on and the Americans wanted to stop this shit um, because it was annoying. And uh, they just moved um, like a well right in between the two villages. And uh, this woman who planned this operation, I think uh, she thought that it would be like some kind of Disney movie where they would become friends because they had to share the well. 
um, and had to cooperate and make like a timetable when who gets the water and so on. And they would become friends over this and forget their, their vendetta, which might have been going on for a hundred years or so. And in the end, uh, they just all killed each other and there was a huge massacre. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, like, can you think of another empire that would have done something like that? Like, like the British would have done that for a laugh because they thought it was really funny. Yeah, you know yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's like, that's their logic at like at the base of like their national character or whatever. But like Americans, yeah, on some level, like, they really believe like, like we can even make like human conflict and, and savagery and selfishness. We can make it work if we introduce our way, like our American mm -hmm. way, our capital and our freedom and so on like everything will be sublimated by the market and like everything has this peaceful outlet and so on and um yeah, yeah and then they bump up against you know then they bump up against something like islam and yeah m muslims yeah like proper like faithful muslims don't believe in any of this shit why and would they, they never will and, and, and they never will yeah. um like they can get assimilated, sure uh, they do in Western countries when they move there. Oh yeah, and, the and, 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 and like three generations, um, you have like oh, woke Islam and, and and, and yeah, Hojabis yeah. and uh, what so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, in general, Americans uh, they don't understand other nations, other cultures, and um, I really think <laughs> they had. A, I really think they have this deep down belief. Um, at the core of their worldview, that every single person on the world is an American liberal. And uh, if you just get the right combination of like slogans and bombing and um, um, sabotage and um, subversion and propaganda, then you can get every person in the world to embrace their inner American. And this is actually the point um, where the anti-imperialist left or like anti-American forces in Europe they basically share this worldview, but their point of view is, um, you know, they're not really anti-American. They're like uh, counter-American in the way that they're hyper-Americans. And their mm. their opinion of America is bad because America doesn't live up to their own ideals of what America should be. So, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so their criticism is like that America is not American enough. Yeah, I mean, I get what you're saying. Like, I partly disagree in the sense that there, you're right. There is this like European snobbishness about like, I, like I, I think I mentioned like they think you Americans like you're you're such pigs. You know nothing about history. Like you just want your trotters in the food bowl. Of course, you can't do this like global liberal democratic empire correctly. But we Europeans like we have the experience of war and 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 you know total war and desperation and so on we can bring the world together by doing liberalism in a more classy way and that's so that's obviously so deluded because europe is defeated and you know they they were lapdogs of the americans for so long and even now there's not much they can do to resist america's military hegemony um and so like yeah that's that's totally ridiculous but yeah. the americans yeah the americans are really they're they're a very queer population. Their their history just fascinates me. Like, how do you how do you take these like random peasants and aristocrats from Europe and then like it didn't take that very long. Like it was only a few decades in some cases, like a few generations 
you can see it back like as far as their founding fathers like and then a few hundred years later you have like a different species of man like all of the old world and like the indigenous peoples of the world like we're one species we have our own grounded ways of living we understand way of life it, like our way of life is not compatible with his way of life maybe we go to war and we take their land and women or something like that or whatever um but we're not in this like the chinese the chinese are not in this to make everyone like a good scholar of confucius that's not yeah. what they're in it for but the americans are really in it so that we all become like good scholars of fucking roles and um you know and 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 whichever other liberals are in their freaking religious canon like their founding fathers and shit mm-hmm. and i've heard it said before that like the saddest society on earth maybe you disagree with this maybe not but like the saddest society on earth is um what's that what's that american that really small american country where they sent all the slave all this some of the slaves they thought they were going to send them all there after the war liberia liberia, liberia yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. They, they basically just copied the American Constitution. So they basically took someone else's entire legal and political system and transplanted it in a place and with a population and with customs and memories and histories which are utterly unfit for purpose. But they did that like in one like one big movement. They just did it like in one big thing. For the rest of us, it's what America is trying to do on a more prolonged scale of things. Yeah, and there and are people are who believe it, like believe this can be done. As and as well. well, remember, Liberia ended up with General Butt Naked. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that uh, the poorest uh, or one of the poorest countries in Africa, other than Probably Congo? Still, yeah. yeah. Okay, I really liked your quote about uh, Americans are queer. And I think that's a nice note to... I mean, in the old, in the old <laughs> sense. I mean, yeah. obviously they're gay as well, but like... Yeah, <laughs> in both senses, yeah. In all the senses, Americans yeah, yeah. are queer. You know, it, it was yeah. a joke, but it's also literally true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's the nice note to finish our podcast. That's more than enough. I think, thank you, you very much, Doris, that you came by to our show. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, check me out on whichever social network hasn't chased me on, chased me off yet. I, I trust you guys will leave links to that. We will. Yeah, and, we will. Um, yeah. yeah. Our our own podcasts will start going up soon. Um, they're already planned and in production. Yeah. So be ready to check out our Australian friend, Australian Serbian friend. Thank you for listening, and see you next time.